come and meet the elders to, to share their faith. Um, and, and we always ask, like, what, what were some critical things that God's done? Summer Beach Project, I feel like over half the testimonies that we get, they say that it is that place that changed their life. That that eight or ten weeks, and so if you're a college student and haven't done it, we totally encourage you to go next summer. If you're a member of this church and a college student next spring comes to you and is look, kind of looking kind of doe-eyed at you and like kind of sad and, and sends you a letter or like asks you about support, please support them um, so that they can go. Um, it, is, it is one of the, we talk about in terms of investments, return on investment, and we, we, can all, we, we don't know what the Holy Spirit is going to do. But from a man, from what the, what, with the knowledge that we have, one of the best ROIs that you can have for investing in the kingdom is to invest in a college student to go to Summer Beach Project. Um, so please do that. Think about that next, next spring. All right, for 1 John chapter 4 is where we are at this morning. I'll read uh, verses 7 through 10 out loud, and you guys read along silently uh, in your Bibles. Hope you have a Bible. If you don't, uh, the words are on the screen as well. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This ends the reading of God's words. Praise be to God. Um, there's a, a famous story, at least amongst kind of pastor circles, uh, about a, um, a pastor in South America who was beginning to grow, become fairly well known. And he moved to a particular city in Brazil and was, be, was taking over as the pastor at, at this church. And they were thrilled to be able to get this pastor. He had lived in another part of the country and had grown up, uh, had become to be well known for his academic endeavors and, and for um, his prominence amongst other pastors and training other pastors. And so this church was just, uh, just thrilled that this man, the, 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 sitting under his teaching. And so the first Sunday he comes in and he preaches this, this wonderful sermon that everyone is moved by and, and they're amazed by and they're also grateful with this new preacher who is there to lead them and guide them. So the next week comes around and um, he gets up and he preaches the exact same sermon word for word as he did the week before. And everyone's kind of like the leaders of the church and the church is just going, huh, I guess he, you know, that's, that's kind of a nice move, like, you know, making sure that this, we've really got this, this is, this is important, like set the tone of the importance of whatever, of this topic that he's going to talk about. And, and so they're like, okay, cool. That was odd, but we're good with it. We'll, we'll move on. Well, the, the third week he comes back and he does the same thing. Preaches the exact same sermon, word for word. Now at this point, the lay elders and leaders of the church are going, scratching their heads and going, what in the world? Is, are we struggling with senility here? What is, what, has this guy lost his mind? Uh, is he forgetting? What's going on? And so they go to him, they have a meeting with him, and they say, hey, we, we love the sermon. It's, it's such a good sermon. You got anything else in the toolbox that we can listen to? And his response was this. When we start applying the first sermon, I'll start preaching another one. 
and they said, touche. That appears to be John's tactic in this book. There are, John essentially has three points to his sermon. And if you want to know you know God is, do you trust in the Jesus, that the God's Son came in the flesh? Second, do you obey his commandments? And third, do you love one another? That's the sermon. And then he gives it, and then he gives it again, and then he gives it again, and he goes, okay, let's review, and he gives it again. We come this morning to a theme that has come up already on three other occasions in the book of John, and that is loving one another. We're going to look at it again both this week and next week. But in order to give this, this section of Scripture its fullest treatment, verses um, chapter 4, verse 7, through chapter 5, verse 5, the theme of it is the love of God and loving one another. In fact, the word love is going to be used, the famous word in the New Testament, agape, is going to be used 30 times in those short verses. It is clearly the theme that he is pounding into our heads. Hey, let's love one another. Hey, we should love one another. Hey, you don't know God if you don't love one another. But where he begins and where he always roots this call to love one another is in God's love for us. And so instead of taking this, these verses, verse chapter uh, 4, verse 7 through 5, 5, and he goes in this kind of cyclical pattern, I'm going to take that cycle and I'm going to break it out into two linear thoughts. Because we are Western people, we don't like to think in circles, we like to think in straight lines. And so this morning we're going to look directly at the love of God, and next week we're going to look at the love of God perfected. This week we're going to look at what we could call the love of God proper. And in, in, in certain, we see this in theological terms, there's a, a theological study called Theology of God Proper. Now, we think of theology, everything is thrown in there, like how are you saved, and what's the role of the Holy Spirit, and uh, what's the, you know, how do you lead the church? All these things get thrown under this terminology of theology or doctrine. But what we mean by theology proper is we're taking that word theology at its most core meaning. Literally, theology means, theos means God, and ology is study of, it's the study of God. And so when we talk about, in theological terms, theology proper, we're saying, we're looking directly, and we're studying the attributes and character of God. And so this morning, what I want to say is, we want, we're going to look at the love of God proper. We're going to look directly at it. Not its implications necessarily for how you live, but simply God's love as it is displayed. This character quality that it says that he has. This attribute of who he is. Now here's the challenge for us. We've sung about the love of God this morning. If you listen to Christian radio, they talk about the love of God all the time. We have, most all of us have somewhere on our house, something that looks like these slap boards up here with the word love in cursive written on it. We have necklaces that say the love of God probably on us right now. We might have underwear that says the love of God that we get from Lifeway Christian bookstores. It, we, are, we talk about the love of God all the time. Now here's the problem with it, is we don't actually engage. It has lost its significance to us. It has lost its depth to us. And what I'm going to say to you this morning, if you have spent a second and a half in church, you're familiar with this idea of the love of God. Even those who don't even go to church, they like this idea of the love of God. And so I doubt I'm going to give you much information this morning that is going to go, oh, wow, I've never, God loves me? 
No, what? So here's what I'm at. We're going to, I just prayed, I know, but I'm going to ask us to pray again because I, I'm not going to say anything radical this morning. And, and here's what we desperately need for this truth that we hear about and that we've actually begun to, we just kind of gloss over, we glaze over, that it actually become real to us again. Would you pray that with me? I'll pray it over you. Lord, I, my words are feeble and, and faint and not very articulate. And Lord, this is going to be just kind of a rote kind of practice. Here we are. It's Sunday morning, middle of October. This is what we do. We're talking about the love of God. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you drive it home to us. That the people in this room who... Um, are functioning out of some, some role in their life of trying to earn your love or, or those who just have taken, who look at your love and just kind of take it for granted. But Lord, you'd waken us anew. So Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would do something in us this morning. From the simple truths that I give, would you drive them in and appropriate them and would you change us? Awaken us once again to this core truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John tells us three things about God's love. We're looking directly at the sun this morning. Three things about God's love. He first he tells us about the origin of God's love. The origin of God's love. We break it down. The whole idea of love comes from God. Without God, there is no idea of love. The love of God comes, and we'll break it down in A, B, and C. The love of God comes first and foremost, we see, from God's essence. One of the reasons why this is in a, one of the most famous texts in all of Scripture, it, it is quoted over and over and over again, is that last phrase in verse 8, God is love. Now, what it means by that, there are all these other places where it talks about God's character and his attributes, but that phrasing indicates that the very core and the essence of who God is, is he is a God of love. It cannot be taken away from him. If, as long as God has been here, love has been here. And God is what? Eternal. He is infinite. He is the Alpha and the Omega. That means love has no beginning and it has no end. It always has been because there always has been God. It is at the core of his essence. And the, the way we can even see this and, and push on this is actually found in one of, the, um, one of the most mystical and strange doctrines in all of Christianity, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. Most monotheistic religions out there believe that there is one God and he is one person. But Christianity has this crazy belief, and the Bible appears to be communicating that there is one God, but in God are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in essence and in character, but there are three persons. Now, the implications of this for God and his essence being a loving God is clear. If God is one and just one person, he does not begin to love until he is created. There is nothing for him to love. But if God is three in one, if there are three persons in the Godhead, it means from the very beginning, from time past, from the Alpha until the Omega, that God within himself has love because each of the members of the Trinity love one another. 
The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father, and vice versa. That they have, as it's been described in various places by Tim, by Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis, that there is this loving dance between the members of the Trinity, communicating and articulating their love for one another. And this isn't just 20th century people. Jonathan Edwards talks about this. He says, in, he says this in one of his sermons on the idea of the Trinity. He says, There is in heaven this fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one, is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it. There is this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. The implication is God in his essence is loving because God is Three in one. He has always been loving within himself. He didn't begin to love when he created you or when he created animals or when he created angels. He has always been loving from eternity past. His means his love is infinite. It is perfect love. All other loves are simply a reflection of the love amongst the members of the Godhead. Now the implication for this is us is that our the love that God extends to you has no beginning and it has no end. That you were birthed out of the love that the members of the Trinity have for one another. It says in Ephesians 2, this whole idea of predestination, which is so uh, challenging and it causes a lot of conflict in the church, but what we do know is this. It says, in love he predestined you before the foundations of the earth. In love that they hold, the Trinity loved each other so much that it was out of an outflow, this bubbling over their love that you were created. Some of you, some of you were born, you were created, your physical being became because two people had a one-night stand. Others of you, though, others of you were born out of a loving relationship where people committed to each other for the rest of your life. Now, listen. Now, if that is the that that is where you came from, if that is the alpha, that is the very beginning of your existence, that's going to change how you view yourself. But that is not the beginning of you. The beginning of you is that there is an objective being, God himself, three in one, who from the very beginning created you in love. Now, he may have brought it about through a one-night stand. He may have brought it about through a covenant of marriage, but you were created by a loving God. That is where you began. And not only that, but that's where you're going. In 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great and famous passage of describing how we are to love one another. Love is patient, love is kind, right? If you went to a wedding this weekend, you heard this verse read. Um, but at the very beginning, at the very end of that, it says this. It says, at the end, at the end, there will be prophecy in tongues, and there will be faith, hope, and love. At the end of all things, there will be faith, hope, and love. But these are the three greatest things to have. Faith, hope, and love. But in the end, the only one of those three that lasts is love itself. Why is that? Why is that? Because one, in God's essence, love has always been there in who God is. And then we will no longer have to have hope. And we will no longer have to have faith when we get to heaven. But for all of eternity, what we will experience for all eternity with God is his love for us and our love for him. That's what will last. Where you have come from is love, and where you are going is love. Your beginning is love, and your future is love. The essence of it, it finds its origin in who God is. That is his goal, that is the goal in making you, to express his love to you, the love that has always been there, and his goal in winning you to himself in the future is so that you can know his love for all of eternity face to face in heaven. 
That's the first origin. The second thing I want you to see is love finds its origin in God, not only because of his essence, but second, because it tells us in God's word. The whole idea of love comes from God's words. We understand it. We know it. We, in our culture, we love this idea of the, of the thought that there is a God of love. But it did not start here. It started in God's words. Now, some people would say, some people would say, listen, we have to ask the question, where did this idea of love of God come from? And they look at you and they would go, why do we even have to ask that question? We just know that God is loving. It's just kind of in the ethos, in the air that we breathe. Well, of course God is loving. Well, how do you know that? Where did you get that idea? Where did you find that? that did you just kind of think of that yourself? Where do we get this idea that God is love? Have we gotten it? Have we gotten it, for instance, have we gotten it from history? Has history shown us that shown us that, that, that history tells us that, that there is a loving God? Is that what history tells us? That all the ancient cultures tell us that there's an, a loving God out there? No, absolutely not. When you look at ancient cultures, you see one commonality when it comes to how they view God, and it is this way. Fear. They view God with fear. They are afraid of him, which is why when you read about the ancient deities, what are they always constantly trying to do? We're going to sacrifice, and we're going to do this, and hopefully he'll help let my crops grow. If my crops go, grow, don't grow, it means he's angry at me, but you never hear about God loving me. If we're not able to have children, it means God must be angry at me. You're lost in battle. God's angry at me. There's never anything about God loving them. It is all about how do we assuage the anger of God? We're afraid of this God. You can't find in the history of religions this idea of a loving God. In fact, in ancient religions, they had priests, kind of like Christianity and Judaism has priests. But the reason why they have priests is why? So they can sacrifice animals or do sacrificial rites and acts in order to try to make themselves, to assuage the gap, to, make them, to, to assuage the wrath of God. The only idea that other religions have about God is that he is fearful. So that's history. What about today? What about the world religions of the day? Does the idea of a personal God with whom you can have a loving relationship with come from the idea of the great religions of the world today? Absolutely not. For example, most of the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, Confucianism, they don't even believe that God is a person. He is not a being that you can have a personal relationship with. There is no personal God. He is kind of this, just the great thought in the sky. And you are not personal. In fact, heaven for them is that you lose your sense of personality. That you're simply dropped into the, the sea of beingness. And so there is no love. There is no personal interaction in relationships. In the same way, the same can be said about Islam. Islam finds the idea of a loving God to be awful. Yes, he might bring you into heaven, but it's not because he loves you. But they look at it and they would say, no, Muslim people, they don't actually believe that they believe God is merciful. They don't believe he's loving. That would be weakness in the Muslim God. And they would be the ones to say it. They find this idea to be crazy that there is a loving God. They would believe that he is fearsome and holy and awesome. And yes, maybe he's merciful, but he does not love you. So can you get the idea of a loving God from nature? Can we look around nature? and say, my goodness, we just get the idea. If we just watch the Discovery Channel enough and see a mother bear loving on a, on a little cub, this is where the, we, the, of course, a loving God comes, it must be, exists because of how this mother bear cares for its, its cub. Well, Annie Dullard, who was a, a writer, a fairly well-known writer, she's kind of got a, one of those kind of bohemian writers, and she writes a, a, a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, in which she's trying to get back to a sense of 
oneness with nature was how she kind of viewed her life. And so she moves out to this creek, this cabin in the woods, and she sits by a creek, and she's hoping to see just the gentleness and the beauty and the love of God from nature. And she said what she found there appalled her and, in fact, frightened her. She says, here's what she saw. I saw a praying mantis eating the head off her mate while they were mating. That's something they always do, by the way. She was particularly shaking when she saw a giant water bug latch itself onto a frog, inject it with a venom that literally turns the inside of the frog to mush, and then suck out its brains. She watched the frog collapse. She saw the eyes go dim and then saw the skull collapse as his brain turned to broth and out it came, and she never quite got over it. What she's saying is that if you, do you see a loving God in nature? No. And in fact, we have to even, like, as, as you're taught in evolutionary sciences, right, it is the survival of the fittest. There is no such thing as a loving God in nature. Do we get the idea of, of a loving God from science? Absolutely not. Science says that we just have a natural world. And again, you're going back to evaluate nature. Uh-oh. So we're not, we don't get this idea of a loving God. Where do we get the idea of a loving God? Not from all the other religions, not from history, not from science, and not from nature. Our whole culture's idea, this whole thing about the fact that the God must be a God of love, it comes from a biblical worldview. It comes from God's word. Only, it is only in the, in the history of religions is there found a loving God in biblical Christianity. If there is a God you can have a personal relationship with. As I said earlier, in these short verses alone, John is going to mention love, the love of God, 30 times. 30 times. There are chapters of the Bible dedicated to displaying of love. Love is at the core of all God's commandments. What? Love God and love neighbor. Romantic love is given a whole book called Song of Psalms. You weren't allowed to read it when you were 13, but it's there. And it talks about, it's an image about God's love, his spousal love for his beloved. This is the point, his intimacy, his affection, and a love for us. The Western culture is borrowing the whole idea of a loving God, is stealing it and robbing it from the biblical worldview. We're taking it from the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that this means you have to believe in the God of the Bible. But I am saying, if you're sitting here today and you believe that there ought to be a God of love, what I would suggest to you is you need to read the scriptures. Because that's where you're actually going to find him. You're not going to find him in the world religions. You're not going to find him in history. And you're darn sure not going to find him in nature. You're going to find him only here in the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and because God is love. So the origin of love comes from God's essence, and the origin of love, even the history of ideas, comes from God's word. One final idea. The whole idea of love finally comes from God's provenience. Now that is a 50-cent word. I'm sorry. But I, it had trying to make it sense with the text. What does it say here? It says, where does, how do we know that God is love? Not that we loved him, but that what? He loved us first. Provenience is this word, is God, the fact that God is before us. That his grace is given before we move towards him. That he loves us before we have ever loved him. That is the whole idea here. God did not love us because we loved. Our love does not provoke love from God. That's not how it works. God's love for you has always been provenience. It has always been first. It has always been before. There is nothing that we can do to awaken God's love for us. 
right? We didn't pursue God. We didn't honor him. We were running from him. You know, it's, it's, I would say even this, God didn't fall in love with you. That's how we often talk about our, our spousal love, right? That we fall in love. And there is true. I fell in love with my wife. Why did I fall in love with her? I fell in love with her because there was something lovable about her. There was her character and her attributes. There was some aspect of her that was drawing me to herself and the way she treated me and the way she talked to me and the way she appeared before me. But that's not the case with us and God. There is nothing lovely about you. You're running from him. You're running as far away from him. You did not love him. You hated him. God actually, I think the image might be well suited to say God loves us more like a mother loves a child. Right? You, you, your child hasn't done anything for you, and yet the child, when that child, I remember the experience for me when I saw Lila for the first time. I mean, this whole idea of having a child was kind of a bump on my wife's stomach. Right, dudes? I mean, we're like, all right, it, this is going to happen? Okay, this is happening. But then all of a sudden, it's like, whew, there's a child in front of me. I remember that was one of the most surreal experiences of my life to look at that child and I, it was like tears just went pow! And I had no idea why. She was yelling at me. She was greasy. She was bloody. There was nothing beautiful in that moment, right? And yet love and affection. In fact, this is the imagery that Jesus uses, that God uses to talk about his love for the people of Israel. In Ezekiel 16, he describes it this way, his love for them. He says that you are a newborn child whose umbilical cord had not yet been cut, but you were going to be left by the side of the road. And you were bloody and you were wailing. There was nothing lovely about you. No one was having compassion on you. Everyone was walking past you. And yet it was in your filth and your muck I picked you up and set my love upon you. There is nothing you have done that has provoked God's love. He simply placed it upon you. His heart went out to you. God voluntarily sets his love upon us who are unlovely. God that the unthinkable, the creator God, after we rejected his creation and rejected him and was destroying our relationship with him, he, he came after us. He's a king dying in our place to pursue unrepentant sinners those who are saying, shaking our fists at God, saying, I hate you. He wasn't obligated to do it. He didn't need to do it. Did you know that? God didn't need you. He already had all the love that he needed within himself, that Trinity thing. He didn't need you to be loved or to love, but he did it anyways. The origin of love is found fully and completely and finally in God's essence it is communicated for the first time in his word, and it is known in our, in our lives first and foremost and utterly originated by God's provenient love for us. That's the first thing you've got to see, the origins of love. Second, you've got to see John tells us about the setting of God's love, the setting of God's love. The setting of God's love is found in, a, in an odd place. The setting of his love is his wrath. The intensity of God's love is seen most brilliantly in the context of the severity of God's wrath. Verse 10. Read along your own Bible. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this is another 50-cent word, but I didn't come up with it. It's just there in the Bible, so we've got to deal with it, right? So you can't blame me. Propitiation. That is the key term. 
Propitiation means this. Propitiation means a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. Got it? Propitiation. A, sa a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. It appeases wrath. God is love. That's what we're talking about. Isn't that great? But now all of a sudden, we're talking about God's wrath. Now this seems kind of incongruous, incongruous, right? It's like we're talking about a mother's love for a child. And then all of a sudden we're talking about God's wrath and what he's going to do to us. We, we, we got to see, we will not rightly see God's love until we see God's wrath. J.I. Packer says that God is not only described as love in 1 John, but he also points out in 1 John 1 verse 5 says that God is also what? God is light. And God's light communicates the fact that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is perfect. He is flawless. He is set apart. Which means that he, because he is holy, he has a settled hostility towards all that is just not holy. A settled hostility towards all that is darkness and is sin. He is perfectly good and therefore is hostile to anything that is not good. They are an affront to his holiness. God's wrath flows out of that holiness. It flows out of his light, out of his perfection, out of his righteousness, and yes, even out of his goodness. We tend to think of God's wrath like ours, which is this kind of involuntary emotional reaction, right? You ever had that, that experience with someone? I remember I had a, um, one of my youth students. I was one time, it was like the first day of camp. We'd already not had any sleep the night before. And I, I walk into the bathroom, like a shuffling to the bathroom. And one of my students, a 16-year-old, took a, a big, enormous balloon. And I came around the corner and he popped it right in my face. I didn't think at all. I swung. I mean, I didn't wait. It was an immediate drilled him right in the chest. Now, I then took care of him, but that was an involuntary emotional reaction. That is not how God's wrath works. God's wrath is not simply this kind of explosive chemical reaction. It is an, actually an outflow of his character. God does not fly off the handle. God's passions are voluntary and deliberate, and he is intentionally does what he does. God's wrath is not just some fun flare-up. J.R. Vassar, Vassar, who is a pastor I really enjoy listening to out in Texas, says this. He describes God's wrath this way. God's wrath is his settled, reasonable, voluntary, and deliberate hostility against all that is unholy, dark, and destructive to his creation. It is part of his goodness. He could not be a good God if he was not also a wrathful God. He could not be a good God. He would not be good if he did not have a settled against hostility against all that is evil in this world. Right? That he looks at child abusers and says, that is evil and I'm going to do something about it. Right? It would be an unjust, not good God if he did nothing about those things. All the injustice and the lack of good in this world. And the gospel story tells us that because we have sinned against God, sinned against his creation, we are the ones who are the rightful objects of his displeasure. That he rightfully should have his wrath poured out upon us. Now, in order to understand propitiation, that this is the bad news for us. This is the bad news. It is bad news for, not just for us, though, it is bad news for the one who wants to love us. You see, the whole definition of propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. 
It's God's wrath that has to be satisfied. His perfect, right, good wrath and justice has to be satisfied. Therefore, God is looking at us to say, I, this justice has to be satisfied. I have to do something. It is a problem not just for us. It's, it's a problem for God and his love for us. If God loves us, and yet in his goodness and perfection of his character, he must pour out his wrath upon us because we've rejected him and have destroyed his creation. That's a problem, right? If you want to love someone and, and be married to someone, but you find out they're going to jail for the rest of your life, that's a problem for you and your love for them. There's a barrier there. And that is, this is a barrier that God says, I am going to cross over. And so what we see in the word propitiation is this truth. That God's son was sent. That God said, this barrier, this wrath that I must pour out out of the goodness of my character, I am, here's my solution so that I can love these people. I'm going to send my son to satisfy my wrath. I'm going to pour my wrath out upon him instead of upon those who I love. That's his love for you. Jesus came to bear our judgment, to take on the full fury of the wrath of God, so the full fury of God's love for us can be poured out upon us. Do you get that? God is his, his fury in, in wrath, and he's furious in love. And in his furious love for you, he poured out his furious wrath upon his son, so that all that was left for you was to communicate and to experience his furious love for you. John Stott says it right in his classic work on the atonement, the cross of Christ. I think the quote will be up there for you to follow along. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God must satisfy his own wrath. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiation and God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self and his own son when he took our place and died for us. That's propitiation. Now, here's the key point why I go through all that whole stuff about propitiation. If you disconnect the wrath of God from God's love, then you will not see the depths of God's love for you. You won't see it. You will cheapen it. If you make, you make God less loving if you remove his wrath. Because here's what, the, here's what our world has done. They love the idea of a God of love, don't they? But they hate the idea of a God of wrath. They hate the idea of a God of justice. So they remove that part of him. But what they've done is they've actually cheapened the thing that they supposedly love so much about God. If God is not a holy God of wrath, then guess what? It costs him nothing to love you. It costs him nothing. If we remove the wrath of God, we make God less loving and we cheapen the love of God and we create a God who loves us at no cost to himself. His love becomes flippant. It becomes something, it comes, becomes free love. Right, 60s and 70s. His wrath not only reveals the depths of his reasonable hostility towards us, but it also reveals the unreasonable depths of his love towards sinners. Because he says, this is the link's that I will go so that you can experience my love. His wrath is the setting of God's love. When I went to um, buy my wife an engagement ring, and I'm going there and I'm going to try to pick out which ring I'm going to choose, what does the jeweler do with the jewelry? Where does he set it? What is the setting of that jewelry? It's on a black velvet crush kind of mat. Why? Because it is in the context of that setting 
that the ring's brilliance pops. And so it is with the wrath and the love of God. If you remove, if you remove that setting, it's not that God becomes less loving, but you don't see it near as clearly. You don't see it near as clearly. And so the scripture is showing us that the wrath of God is that dark velvet backdrop. And if you want to know the love of God, if you want to see it pop in all its actual brilliance, in its actual beauty, in its actual brightness, then you have to see it in light of what you deserve, the wrath of God. Third, John tells us not just about the origin of God's love and the setting of God's love, but lastly, he tells us about the manifestation of God's love. The manifestation of God's love. See this in verses 9 and verse 10. The extravagance of God's love is seen in the expression of it. How do you know someone loves you? By how they express it. By how you, you come to know it. How extravagant is the love of God? You see how he expressed it to us. Verse 9. How is the love of God made manifest? How, manifest, that's a word that means see it. You experienced it. You know it experientially. The love of God was made manifest. That is, it was seen in this, that God sent his only son. Now that word only son is a technical word. It's the Greek word monogenes. Mono, only, genes, kind of where we get generation. Only son. And what it actually literally means is this. It means special, unique, cherished, one of a kind. There's none else like it. It is only the Son, the one who has been face-to-face with God the Father for all of eternity in a love relationship, an intimacy that we cannot imagine. It is only this unique Son. It was Him that was sent to the world. It wasn't angels. It wasn't animals. It was God's Son. Now, do you understand the, the, the significance of this for understanding God's love for you? You know the value of the thing by how much it cost, by the price that you're willing to pay to achieve it, to receive it. Understand this real quick. I'm going to take a side note. I want to debunk a misconception about propitiation. Remember that propitiation has got us to satisfy his wrath. And often what this means is people say, that God of the Old Testament, that Father God, he's angry. And Jesus, thank God Jesus came because he's, he's, he's like going to God the Father and going, there, there, it's okay. You notice what it says here. Who sent Jesus? The Father sent his Son. It was the active work of the Father. He paid the, the cost. He sent the, paid the, the ransom to make us his. And the high point of redemptive history is this. is The greatest display of God's character, of the love of God is seen in this. And the way that we know God, we can't get to God. We can't get to God's love. How do we know it then? It had to come to us. It had to take on flesh. The beauty of the gospel is this, is love came down. Love entered in to your experience, to your life. In Christ Jesus, love came down. In Christ Jesus, love is personified. In Christ Jesus, love became a human being. And love became the ransom. The expression of God's love says something about you and me. Do you understand this? It says something about your identity. Right? We, this, is, this is part of the problem. If we don't teach some crunch in our doctrine, 
we start to lose the significance of phrases like find your identity in Christ that just becomes a label of conferences and Christian books. But do you see what your identity is, what your value is, what God the Father gave up to make you his, the worth, the value of something, you know it, by how much someone is willing to pay to purchase it. The story a number of years ago that came out, it's called um, the story of the Mazarin chest. It's a true story. There was a wooden chest, and it was layered in, in pure gold. The whole chest, it was rather large. And for hundreds of years, it had passed through hands. And people didn't actually know or understand that it was real gold. And in fact, it moved from, from person to person. And for several years, two of the uh, Mazarin, it was two golden chests, were considered utterly lost. In fact, the Victor, Victoria and Albert Museum in England looked for it far and wide um, in hopes of finding these two chests that history had, that they had read about in history. And it turns out that in 1970, the chest was sold for $160 to a French engineer who worked for Shell Petroleum. The engineer used it as a TV stand. And he sat in his apartment for 16 years. But when he retired, when he retired, it was found that he had stopped using it as a TV stand and was now using it as a bar in his basement. Oblivious to all this, in 2013, the engineer's family called in the auction specialist of a Ruach to, a, to appraise and sell his estate. And, and the Ruach people looked at this and realized what it was. And it was eventually sold at the auction for 7.3 million euros or $9.5 million. And he had used it as a $160 TV stand. That's how some of you are using your life. When someone has paid a precious price to make you his. Does your life reflect that you are merely a TV stand worth 160 bucks? There's a parable, and I've mentioned it a number of times, but you have, I'm just going to go back to it again. There's a parable that says this, in which the parable goes like this. There was a man who found a great treasure in a field. And he, so he sold all that he had in order to buy that field to win that treasure. Now listen, here's what religion says about that parable. Religion says, isn't God, God is so valuable. So sell everything you have and go to the mission field. God is worth it just to sell everything and get him. No, that's not actually the point of the parable. The point of the parable is this, is that God looked out, he looked in the field, and he saw a treasure, and he said, I will sell my son to make you my child. And it's out of that that you begin to realize, oh my goodness, this actually is a God worth selling everything for. It starts with the good news of the gospel. Do you see what the Father says you're worth? How much was, was the Father, how, how much was he willing to pay? First Peter says it so beautifully and so succinctly. He says this, you were not redeemed with gold and silver, but with what? But with the precious blood of the Lamb. That's the value bestowed upon you. You are the lost treasure, and it cost God everything to win you back, to pour out his love upon you. Lastly, what do we do with this? What do you do with this? What do you do with this? I love um, 
was reading about a group of professionals who posed the question of what is love, <laughs> what does love mean to a bunch of four to eight-year-olds, right? This sounds like classic preacher illustration, doesn't it? What does love mean to you at four to eight-year-olds? And of course, you've got all the uh, classic kids say the darndest thing sort of answers. But I, there was one that was actually really profound I thought was beautiful. One child said this, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. And so they asked the little girl, why is it you should say it a lot? And little Jessica, who's seven years old, said this, because people forget. So my question for you this morning, brothers and sisters, have you forgotten God's love for you? If it has, scratch the record and stop everything and let's fall on our face and plead for us, for him to show us his love again. Because if you're trying to do life without it, it is exhausting and it undercuts your significance and it undercuts your value. And if you're here today and you've never had anybody say that to you, man, maybe for the first time you need to hear this, that there is a God of love out there and you have run from him and yet he was pursuing you, and he was willing to pursue you by giving up the most cherished thing that the world has ever known, the Son of God himself, to make you God's child. The response should be this. Thank you. You cry out for him to reveal that love for you if you're still finding yourself cold this morning. Let's pray to that end. Yeah, God, just like we, I prayed earlier that the seeds of the gospel that Kim and Montrell and others have, 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 have spread, God, I pray that this seed, that your spirit would take it and bring it to life within us. God, I, I think of the prayer of David when he says, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. God, this is it right here. The means of restoration is to repent of all the lesser loves that we have sought. The things that we sought would sat, thought would satisfy. The religious experiences. All the things that life could give us. Lord, I pray that you'd woo us and draw us back by the love of God for us. God, and then as we're going to sing just now, I just pray that we would lift our hearts up in, in gratitude. And that even as the people like, like screaming on a, on a roller coaster, that the joy of expressing and saying thanks to you would be a means of just rooting and driving the truth of your love even further and deeper in. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.